welcome to another episode of In The Area Podcast, your weekly source for wisdom nuggets. Today, I sit down with my dad. I'm getting on in years. I'm a businessman in Houston, own commercial real estate in Houston. I still live in Houston, but I'm up here in Vail right now visiting Zach. Guys, I've never heard my dad's story told from beginning to present before. You know, I've heard bits and pieces throughout my life, but hearing it told all together was an extremely moving experience. I was brought to tears by the end. Like I was crying. I was definitely overcome with powerful emotion. But since then, I felt closer to my dad. So I encourage you guys in the next coming weeks to carve out a few hours, you know, get, get a voice recorder and just sit down with one of your parents and just ask them what their story is what their journey has been from beginning to present. I, I don't know what'll happen, but I, I can tell you it might be really good. It might be super, super good. Folks, if you want to support the podcast, want to support the movement of collecting wisdom nuggets and sharing them with the world, subscribe to our channel on iTunes, Spotify, any app that plays podcasts, and follow us on Instagram at in the area pod and enjoy today's episode. Can you talk about your background? Because I think you have an interesting story to how your family arrived to the U.S. And, and where you were born and where you moved. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so on one side of my family, of course, is my mother's family. And my mother was a ch- child survivor of Nazi Germany. And so basically her family and, of course, you know, my family... Most of them were killed in, um, they lived in like the Poland, Ukraine area that was ultimately invaded by the Nazis. And almost her whole family was killed. Um, My grandmother um, had seven sisters, all of whom were married and all of whom had children. And they were all killed. My grandfather, uh, my mother's father, he was killed. And uh, so I was raised with a lot of these stories. Like the way my grandfather was killed is... um, the Nazis, they were, they were living in a small town, and they were very successful. Um, they had some kind of general store or something in the town. And, you know, we're doing well. Considering it was a small town, you know, they were comfortable. And uh, the Nazis came in, and they said that they needed to, all the uh, Jewish men, they needed them. Uh, they were going to put them on some work detail. So they all had to come into the center of town. They rounded them up. And... They actually marched him to the outside of the town, and they had already had trenches dug, and they ended up shooting them all and murdering them all and just, you know, burying them in the trench. So that's that's how my grandfather's life ended. But I was raised with a lot of the stories of, you know, what, what my mother... So my mother had one brother, and my grandmother, who I was very close to, um, was raised with a lot of stories of what they had to do. My mother was only like seven years, six years old, um, when they started hiding and trying, they, she, they never ended up in a concentration camp. But um, I just was raised with this, all the horror stories of, you know, the, the the things they had to endure while they were hiding. And my grandmother always said it was just a miracle that they survived. And based on the stories that, you know, they told me it really was. So, yeah. So that was one side of my family. And my father was a real interesting guy. He was born in, in um, the Bronx in New York. 
And uh, his father was a window cleaner, which was considered a trade or profession back then. But he was a really tough guy and, you know, sort of a mean guy. That's all I remember about my grandfather. My father's father was he was really mean. And uh, so my father had a real tough upbringing. And I never found out till later in life, but he actually dropped out of school when he was 15 years old because he had to uh, try to make a living. My grandfather thought that the best trade in the world was to be a window cleaner. So my father was trained to be a window cleaner. Back in the day in, the, in New York, everything was sort of mob controlled. So even the window cleaning routes, you couldn't just go into a section of like the Bronx, let's say, and decide I want to be a window cleaner and start cleaning windows because that would have been someone's territory. And that was all controlled by the unions. And the unions were all basically controlled by the mob. So how you got in, you had to buy roots and there was all kinds of like crazy stuff going on. So you had to be a pretty tough guy. And my father was one of the real tough guys. And so he would actually work for the union sometimes and he would be an enforcer. So if someone tried to invade someone's territory, they, the union would call my father and say, his name was Julius. They say, Julius, uh, you know, we've got a guy that you need to go, they'd say, go talk to. But, you know, he was prepared to do a lot more than just talk to him. And, you know, he basically had to intimidate them and make them realize that, you know, it wasn't a good idea for them to come back and clean windows here anymore. And that was like his side gig. But he had his own window cleaning route. And so, uh, and I have memories. So my father, you know, started off, he wasn't making a lot of money, but he was, you know, he was ambitious, sort of an honest guy, as honest as you could be. But, you know, I wouldn't call him a hustler, but he knew how to get out there and do what he had to do to make some money. And, uh, and he could be a real tough guy. On weekends, we would go visit my, my father's parents in the Bronx, but, um, and they lived on the other side of the Bronx. So before we'd go visit them, sometimes my father hadn't finished his window cleaning route. So he would have us little kids in the back of the car. And um, my one of my strongest memories is, so when he'd go and he'd say, okay, before we go visit, we called them Bobby and Zadie, my two grandparents. Before we go visit Bobby and Zadie, I got to stop and finish my window cleaning because I didn't finish the route. So he'd have like his Tom McCann shoe store, his floor shine shoe store, the bank on the corner, or the AMP that he had to go clean the windows. And my biggest fear on the way there was he'd always have his bucket of soap water in the back on the floor behind in front of the back seat. And he'd have his squeegee, his chamois, his stick, and uh, his brush. And because so, he was prepared to clean the windows. And my biggest fear would be that I'd knock over that pail of water because my father, like I said, could be a mean dude. He was a great father, but you didn't want to like mess up. What happened? To, what would happen if you knocked over the bucket? I don't know. I mean, back then, you know, there was such a thing as spankings, that kind of thing. You know, now that's not considered acceptable to right. the kids. But, but he'd spank you. I would have gotten a real good... You know, I mean, I, I learned the word later in, in, in life because up north we didn't have this word, but down south they called it a whooping, right? So I would have gotten a spanking, or if you're from down south, you call it, I would have gotten a pretty good whooping. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Damn. Yeah. So anyway, that was my father, a real tough guy, and eventually, you know, one of the things he figured out was he was raised as a window cleaner, and back in the day they didn't really have janitorial service companies. So my father, when he was cleaning these windows in these stores, he thought, man, 
they don't want to clean their bathrooms. They don't want to have to wax their floors or, you know, vacuum the carpets. He thought, man, I could provide this as part of my service where when I clean the windows, I could go in and start providing janitorial service. So that's the way he got into the janitorial service business. And uh, then before you knew it, he had more work than he could do himself. So he started hiring people and getting trucks. And then we moved to Spring Valley. He had a business there. And then we only lived in Spring Valley, which is the first suburban place I was talking about. But then he found this business in the back of the New York Times that was advertised for sale, a janitorial service in Poughkeepsie, New York. And we didn't even know who, who had ever heard of Poughkeepsie, New York. And we didn't know how to get there. But he goes to my mother, we're going to take a drive out to Poughkeepsie because there's a business for sale out there. So we all get in the car. How old are you? Uh, I was nine years old. And he goes upstairs into some building and on Main Street in Poughkeepsie, it all ended up being demolished in urban renewal. But it was a beautiful historic area that had become sort of a rough neighborhood. But um, so he went upstairs, met with this guy who had this janitorial service, and he comes back downstairs after two hours. And he goes, hey, I just bought this business and we're moving to Poughkeepsie. Never even consulted with my mother. And he ended up owning a lot of bars in Poughkeepsie too, which made him really a very interesting local character and had a huge influence on me as a kid. And I, when I asked my father, I said, dad, like, why did you start buying bars? And he goes, well, I was having trouble getting labor. And he thought, well, if I owned bars, that would be like a good way to like let people know that I had jobs for him in the janitorial business. I always tell the story. My father, like I said, he was a tough guy, rough guy. wasn't afraid of anything. So he was always packing back in the day when people were packing. And he, um, he was flashy. You know, he drove like flashy red Cadillacs and... Um, and he was always real proud of the fact that he had become successful. So he always liked to carry a big wad of hundreds with him. So he usually have like $10,000. He always had a cigar, always hanging out, lit or unlit. He drank a lot. And, you know, now it's nothing to be proud of. But I remember times when, because, and he could drink anybody under the table. Like he'd go to weddings and he'd always have a bet that with anybody that I could out drink you. So a lot of my relatives have stories of how they ended up unconscious on the floor at the weddings because <laughs> they couldn't keep up with my father. And I loved being in his bars. And that was back in the day when you had jukeboxes. And so I, and in and, and his bars, it was all like R&B, Motown. Motown was real big back then. So that was the music I was brought up with. And so that's, you know, so that's had a huge influence on me and my taste of music. Because, mm. you know, that's that's the music I love the most. And, of course, you know, now, of course, I carried it forward into, you know, all, all more contemporary music, whether it be R&B, uh, hip-hop, neo-soul. So, you know, I love all those genres of music, yeah. You're also an avid record collector. Yeah, that's something I'm into. You know, I, I never was, always loved music, but I never, you know, I took piano lessons for a year, but I never really, I, I mean, one of my big regrets is I didn't stick with it because I wish I was a musician. So, uh, you know, I've always been very passionate about music. So one of the things I've done is become a huge record collector and I probably have about 30,000 record albums. I started putting my collection together really I guess now I could give, pat myself on the back. I had a little foresight because back in the day when they first started coming out with CDs, um, compact discs, uh, everyone decided, like, these records are obsolete. You know, who wants records? 
So people were just unloading their record collections big time, like almost giving away, selling them for nothing. And sometimes, you know, they'd be like amazing jazz and blues and all kinds of things. So I, I hit some major home runs. So yeah, I've got some fabulous, super collective records in my collection. Can you just say what a few of them are that are exciting? Uh, you know, just early blues guys, whether it be like Lightning Hopkins or John Lee Hooker, you know, some of their original ones. Uh, some of them are bands. Uh, I can't even think of them, but they're really, you know, bands that no one ever heard of. But you learn a lot in record collecting about music. And back in the day, you know, I mean, racism is still obviously a big issue nowadays. It's not like it's over. But uh, back then, it was a lot more blatant. Back in the day, like when they put out records, you had the black market and you had the, the white market. And white people wouldn't buy records that were being produced for the black market. So what would happen is a lot of times records that were produced for what they called the black market would have like, you know, pictures of black women or black men on them. And unfortunately, that's just the way the times were. You know, you couldn't market those records to the quote unquote white market. So... And this was the best music that was being made at the time, obviously, out there. So, you know, there were some smart producers out there that thought, man, this music's amazing, but we've only sold like 20,000 albums because the black market wasn't as broad as the white market. So they'd go and change the cover and put out the same exact record album, but with a different cover, and then it would sell half a million or a million copies. So guess which record as a collector you want, you want to find? It's the one that was originally produced with the original cover. And those are super rare because, you know, a lot of, not, sometimes not many of them have survived. Wow. Yeah. So that's just, you know, little things like that that you learn about. And you it, know, was, it tells you something about history too, you know. And it was cool being a kid, you know, seeing all those albums everywhere and having a curiosity about them. And Well, you know, I mean, I grew up when rock and roll was just really breaking out. You know, like I said, I went to Woodstock. So, you know, I, you know, the 60s was the early 70s was were the peak years for rock and roll. And I mean, and it's music that still sounds amazing today. So, I mean, I remember going to the record stores or back then you'd go to, you know, whatever the department store had a record department. And you'd be so excited, like when, you know, a new Jimi Hendrix album came out or a Beatles album or a Rolling Stones album or, you know, Jefferson Airplane or Sly and the Family Stone or whoever was big at the time, you know, and you'd have their album and you treasure it. And I remember getting my first, you know, component stereo system and I'd be able to listen to it in stereo high fidelity, you know, so... Yeah, those are, you know, now we take all that stuff for granted. And before we depart this era of your life, um, this is all going on in the backdrop of the late 50s and the 60s. Well, not really late. Well, my ch early childhood was late 50s, but... S 60s you know, and 70s. 60s and 70s in college, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Well, I graduated from college in 1976. I graduated from high school in 1972. So... Yeah, so I had a lot of interesting experiences. And like one of the ones I always like to tell people, which is one of my crazier stories, is I ended up going to the original Woodstock Music Festival that occurred in 1969 in Bethel, New York. And uh, I was only 15 years old and just how I got there. 
Tell uh, that story. Yeah, it's just a real crazy story. So my father, back in the day, there were a lot of hotels in the Catskills, and this was before Vegas was big. So, you know, like all the top performers, everybody would go and break out in the Catskills. And these hotels were huge, you know, and they'd have these dining rooms that could seat 2,000 people and every facility you could imagine, you know, for entertainment and sports and anything. They were just, so my father loved going to these hotels. He also liked to gamble. So he was a big poker player and they used to have huge high stakes poker games at all these hotels. So he'd go and he'd play like poker till four in the morning. And, uh, you know, he loved going to the shows. He was real flashy. And so anyway, my father, right when Woodstock was going on, said, hey, I'm going up to the Browns Hotel in the Catskills. Well, I was smart enough to know that Browns Hotel was only about 25 miles away from where the Woodstock Music Festival was. And my parents had no idea what it was. And keep in mind, I was only 15 years old. So I said, Dad, I'm going to drive up with you. And then I'm going to try to get over to this music festival. So he said, okay. Drove up to the Browns. I got out of the hotel, Browns Hotel, and I started hitchhiking at 15 years old to get to Woodstock. And just getting there, I had all these crazy experiences. Like one of my rides was in a Volkswagen van, and it was filled with a bunch of like what everybody was called hippies. Everybody had long hair, was smoking, taking a lot of drugs, smoking a lot of back then. We didn't call it weed, pot, marijuana, whatever. And uh, one of my rides was a bunch of hippies had come in from California, and they were all from a commune. And uh, they were bringing in a lot of drugs to sell at Woodstock. And when I realized, oh, my God, I got a ride in this van with, like, I mean, ridiculous amount of drugs. And there were roadblocks that we had to go through. And I kept thinking, if they get pulled over and busted— I'm going to get busted with them. They're not going to believe me that I'm not part of this commune. And I was just so afraid because literally my father- You were 15. I was 15, but my father would have killed me, okay? Literally, I, I wouldn't be here to tell this story right now. So anyway, but Woodstock was just so overrun that, you know, these roadblocks, I don't even know why they had them, but, you know, they weren't enforcing laws. Let's put it that way. So, because um, there was just too many people. I mean, the- jails. I mean, they just couldn't handle all these people up there. And so, uh, so yeah, so I ended up going to Woodstock, stayed there one night, you know, was mud drenched. I never even really made it close to the stage. I ended up sleeping on a hill where a lot of the outhouses were. And, but you know, it was still the whole experience. I mean, I had one experience after another and just getting there and getting back to the Browns hotel. And one of the funnier things is when I did make it back to the Browns hotel the next day, it was lunchtime. So, the, you know, my father invited me to the dining room and I was all buddy and smelly, you know, because I had been outside and, you know, getting to Woodstock, it was all sweaty and hot. And uh, I sat down at the table and my mother and grandmother used to speak Yiddish. So I understood a lot of Yiddish. And when I said they used to, like when I was a little kid, then, you know, as they learned English better and all that, they just spoke English. But so as a little kid, I heard a lot of Yiddish. So I do understand it quite well. And uh, so I sat down to this, and it was main, mainly older people back then. So I sat down to this older couple, and the first thing the woman said when I sat down next to her, and she didn't think I'd understand it, was she said, er schmeckt, which in 
Yiddish means he stinks. <laughs> but I didn't care. I was hungry, so I ate, didn't say anything. But I know I was really grossing those poor people out because oh, I just got back from Woodstock. My so, God. Yeah, so that was my Woodstock experience. Yeah, but as a 15-year-old, it's just hard to believe. And I also want, I'm thinking of Tom Grosso and Mr. Lynch. You had two teachers, too, that yeah. had big influence. Right. Well, my fifth grade teacher, he was real interesting because he had a hook arm. Okay, his name was Mr. Lynch, and he was—he had a real tragic story because the way he had his hook arm was he and his daughter were going across a railroad bridge, and um, a train came while they were on the bridge, and his daughter ended up getting killed, and he lost his arm. So it was very tragic, but he still remained uh, a teacher, and he was my fifth-grade teacher. But back then, like I said, the rules of engagement— for everything were a lot different. So you were allowed to like spank kids and, you know, if we misbehave. So, it, I mean, he'd bring us out in the hall and we'd get paddled and you could, you could hear, you'd be sitting in the class and whoever got paddled, you hear him scream in the hallway. And one of our biggest fears was he had this hook arm, but it was like two like things, I don't know what prongs. you call it, prongs that he could move around. So when we were bad in class, he would grab our ear and twist it with his metal oh. hook arm. And we'd be so afraid <laughs> because it really hurt. And you'd think he could rip your ear off with that thing. So, uh, yeah, so stuff like that. We'd get paddled in the hallway or we were afraid of his hook arm. So that was my fifth grade experience <laughs> in public school. And then in sixth grade, we ended up having this teacher named Tom Grasso. And this is where I became best friends with my friend Jeff. And Tom Grasso was a 23-year-old. He had just graduated from college, and he was basically a hippie. And so we were doing all kinds of crazy things. Like we had a ping-pong table in our class. We did, like, you know, crazy shows that, you know, would offend everybody in front of the school. And we were doing, we were, uh, doing films. And back then, people weren't shooting films. I mean, it was like Super 8. And we, you know, we were doing like, we'd come up with plots and we'd direct them and we'd act. And this was in sixth grade. So that inspired a lot of my creativity. And what's crazy is Tom Grasso ended up, after that year, he got on his motorcycle and he rode out to LA and he ended up being, he was a great keyboard player. So he ended up being in like some really like seminal bands in like the, that era, the late, like the 60s. Uh, he was in Captain Beefheart and, there used to be a really famous band that I'm sure most of you haven't heard it, but he was one of the more influential guys, a guy named Frank Zappa. And he had a band called the Mothers of Invention. And Tom Grasso was on that. And I remember one, and we all stayed in touch with him. He remained our friend. So one time we knew he was going to be on TV. He was going to be like on the Merv Griffin show, you know, which was like, you know, uh, the Jimmy Kimmel show of today or whatever. So he called us and he was in a band called Tarantula back then and this is you know because he was in different bands out there and we were so excited to watch him on tv that was like such a big thing to see our sixth grade teacher you know and of course he grew his hair real long he was just this crazy hippie and he was playing keys for you know this rock and roll band called tarantula and to this day we're all still friends with tom grasso yeah and and a lot of the friends we made in sixth grade were still all friends and we we stay in touch with him yeah so cool. Yeah. So it just shows you the impact that teachers can have on you. And So I'm going to zoom back in. We finished, so we were talking about Vassar. Right. When you reflect on your memories of that 
period of your life, you, you don't seem to reflect, you seem to carry a lot of regrets about them. Right. Well, you know, I went through, I was confused, you know, like a lot of people that age didn't really understand myself, didn't know what direction I wanted to go in with my life, was conflicted with a lot of things. So I wasn't necessarily a happy person. So in hindsight, I didn't really take advantage of the college experience. And I was very rebellious. So, you know, I, I really did not want to participate in the social life of college. I went there to get a degree. You know, I got a good education. Um, but, you know, I was just, and then I became immediately focused on my career. And so I ended up getting a job as a logging engineer. And, uh, and I ended up advancing very rapidly through the company. So they put me in sales in Houston. So my first month in sales, you know, I was, I was nervous. I really didn't know if I could sell. And so my manager calls me in and he goes, you know, I've got good news and I got bad news for you. So I thought he was getting ready to fire me. He goes, the good news is I think you're going to make it. You, you know, I'm getting good feedback on how you're doing and it seems like you're bringing in some business. He goes, but the bad news is you're not spending enough money on your customers, Okay. So he was basically telling me I had an unlimited expense account, okay, that I had to like wine and dine these guys like you wouldn't believe. So a lot of times my day would just consist of like, you know, a lunch appointment and, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd stretch them out, we'd drink or whatever. And that would be my day of sales. And uh, what? And then also I learned, you know, I wasn't a guy that would go on deep sea fishing expeditions. I wasn't a hunter um, didn't, you know, think I could do like ski boondoggles to, you know, Aspen or Vail or wherever. And did you enjoy your life at that point? Oh, it was a blast. I mean, I loved it. You know, I was very business oriented. I loved my clients. They, they, a lot of them became my really good friends. Oh, and I was saying I got lucky because in 84, I had an opportunity. My father was getting ill. And so, uh, and I really knew the business. And he said, you know, it's time, like, if you, if you want to really make some money. Because I was doing well as an engineer, you know, an engineer, they call me an engineer and a manager and all, but it was nothing like you could make being in business for yourself. So my father said, you could come and run the business because, you know, I'm getting to the point where I just don't want to run it anymore. I can't run it. My health's failing. And so I, I moved back to New York, and everybody couldn't believe I quit this job because I was like the rising star in the company. They thought I was going to be like president of the company when I was 40 years old. Yeah. Cause I was moving up that quickly. And, uh, and you were 30 at this time. I was 30 when I left, um, Gerhardt and went back to New York and ran the family, you know, my father's business that became my business. And I did very well with it. I actually grew the business, but I hated it. Okay. I hated the business. I hated dealing with IBM. It was just miserable, but I was making a lot of money. And so I stuck it out for five years. But I always loved Houston, you know, when I was there. And so, oh, and what I was saying is, so I, I, I looked like a genius when I got out, but I didn't know, because I got out in 84, and like six months after I got out, the bottom fell out of the oil industry. And then they even had an expression, it was stay alive till 85, you know, because... Like everybody was losing their jobs. Oil had dropped to, you know, like below $10 a barrel. It was just a disaster, you know. Um, the whole industry just caved in. And, and, and Houston like suffered like you wouldn't believe. So from like 84 
till about 90, Houston was like the most depressed city in the country in terms of the economy. It lost like 200,000 jobs. And don't forget they had like 2 million less jobs back then in Houston. So 200,000 was like 20% of the jobs in the whole city at that point. Yeah. So, and it wasn't just the oil industry because it had a trickle down effect because a lot of the money that was flowing into the economy came from the oil industry. And then there were services, restaurants, whatever. Everybody suffered, the whole economy. But the real estate business took like the biggest hit. I mean, because just imagine 200,000 people moving out of town, like within a couple of years. So apartment complexes were being abandoned. Office buildings were empty. They called them see-through office buildings. And so you could buy real estate really inexpensively, but the question was, a lot of people thought Houston might never turn around. And so in 89, I thought, you know what? I think there's some real opportunities in Houston because I believed in the city. And, and, and I had bought a small office building in, in New York at the time that I housed our company in, and it was a multi-tenant office building. And... While I was in New York, I realized, man, I really like like running, operating this office building. So I think my calling is in real estate. So, and I had made quite a bit of money, so I had cash to invest. So I decided I'm going down to Houston and I'm going to start buying real estate. And I really didn't know much about real estate, okay? You know, I ran a little office building in New York. And I started buying apartment complexes, office buildings, and... And everybody thought I was crazy because they said, you're going to lose every penny you're putting into them because everything I bought was losing ridiculous amounts of money. That's why you could buy it so cheap. And no one, some people said Houston would never come back. So it was like a bottomless pit, you know, a white elephant. And I believed in it. And to be honest, I almost did go broke because it took a little longer to turn around and I started running out of money. And this, these properties I bought were sucking up all my cash real quick. But I persevered, and I just made it, and then the market did turn around, and uh, and I ended up doing quite well. But that's how I originally got into the real estate wow. business in Houston. Yeah. So at the peak, how many office buildings, apartment complexes did you own at that time? Well, there wasn't really a peak, but uh, I owned maybe about a thousand units. You know, 250-unit apartment complex here, 260-unit apartment complex there. And, you know, and then I sold off all my apartment complexes and kept the office buildings. So I ended up with, you know, well over a million square feet of office buildings around Houston. Ed, what are the more interesting office buildings? Might not have been the best investment I ever made, but uh, I bought a property that had a theater on it, arena theater. I bought it mainly for the office buildings, but it had happened to come with a theater. And I've really gotten a lot of enjoyment. Now, we we never operated the theater. We always were the landlord. I, I do have a partner on that property. And uh, so we always were the landlord, and we leased it out to a tenant. But because I love music so much, I had a lot of fun, you know, going to the concerts, going backstage, meeting the artists. getting. Get, I was like a little groupie. I'd sometimes go, you know, if Aretha Franklin or B.B. King or Al Green was backstage, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Ron Isley, I'd go backstage and get my album signed, you know. So I had a lot of fun with that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And that's sort of my story, you know, and still in the real estate business, still own office buildings, still own Arena Place. And, uh, you know, and now the Houston economy is not doing that well. So, 
you know, you go, you go through your ups and downs and you just got to be prepared for the downs, you know, and make sure you're positioned properly, you know, in terms of having the reserves to, you know, weather the downturn. Cause, and you and I were talking about it and you were asking about the future of Houston. And I said, you know, I'm not too bullish on Houston for the next five to 10 years or so, just cause I don't see the energy industry having a strong rebound and Houston is still, Houston has a lot of other things going for it. Largest medical center in the world, the big, biggest port in terms of tonnage. And we do have other industries, but it's still like 50% of the economy is tied into the energy industry. So right now that I don't see, you know, great prospects for it over the next five to 10 years, but my, my overall appraisal to you or final analysis is I said, never count Houston down for the count because Houston always seems to come back. So don't bet long-term against Houston. Mm. Okay, so that's my advice on Houston. And at breakfast today, we ate at uh, Eagle Diner, and you shared some life advice just generally. Do you remember what that advice was? Yeah, I was just talking about, you know, when you get older, like I'm, I'm getting older now, and the older you get, um, you start reflecting on on your life and uh, your relationships, you know, both of my parents are no longer here. So you flash back onto, you know, how you interacted with them and, and, and just in general, how, like I said, I, I wasn't happy in college and, and all this stuff goes by so quickly and you never can get those moments back. And, you know, life moves is a fleeting thing, you know, and none of us know how long we're going to be on this planet. So my advice in terms of, you know, how you, you know, treat other people and how you, your outlook on life is, is, is you have to, um, you know, like I, I look back with my father and sometimes I think, you know, my father used to give me a hard time because I had long hair and I dressed like a hippie or whatever. And, but he never made me change it, but he'd always be very critical of me. And so I'd always be upset with him. And in hindsight, I didn't give my father the respect and, and you know, love, even though I really loved him, but I didn't show it. And, you know, you can't get that back. And that's like, you know, I don't live life with regrets, but in hindsight, if I had to give advice to people, it's like, don't treat people, just think about how you're going to feel about that person down the road. And, and so if you're feeling love for that person, show the love, you know what I mean? Um, because, I mean, you don't know how long they're going to be here. You don't know how long you're going to be here. Yeah. And, and, you know, those relationships, I mean, you only have so many special relationships in your life, you know. And so you want to value those. And, you know, everything has ups and downs. But work through things, you know. Um, communicate. Um, get past the obstacles. And that applies to everything in life. Overcome the obstacles. Don't let them get in your way. And, uh, you know, there's obstacles with everything. Mm. And so, you know, we all have setbacks. But uh, if you have a positive attitude and you generate, you know, good energy, um, it's going to come back to you. And so you should always remember that. And the other thing I was saying is uh, life is not about money, okay? Money is an artificial thing. 
And money does not make you happy. It does not, there's no price on, on happiness. You can't buy happiness. You could have a billion dollars, you could have a million dollars, and you could still be the most unhappy person in the world. And sometimes you want to be happy even when you have all that money. So a billionaire, if he could go and say, man, I'll give you a million dollars for happiness or two million. No, you can't buy it, okay? So, uh, so you want to make sure that you learn what's really important in life and, and don't let money be your objective or your guiding force. You know, it's relationships. It's being a good person. It's um, being kind to people, being compassionate. Those are the things that really matter. Mm. And it'll come back to you too. Yeah. And those are the things that people remember about you. I mean, you could be the billionaire and they might think of you as, oh, that son of a bitch, you know, he fucked everybody over, he treated everybody like shit. Yeah, so what? He had all that fucking money, but he was an asshole, you know? So money does not make you a good person. No. And it does not make you happy. No. And and I I know, that, and this is um, going back to an earlier part of the conversation, it, uh, when you talk about your dad, it it sounds like when he was dying, he was dying of diabetes, right? right? Compli- a lot of complications. Yeah. It sounds like that was very. I mean, that was obviously a very painful experience. Yeah, I mean, he was sixty four when he died. You know, which is a young man. I mean, not a young man, but too yeah. young to die. I mean, you want to. I mean, he was just at the point where you know he was successful. He really could have retired and gone about, you know, done everything that he ever dreamed about in his life because all he did was work his ass off his whole life. Yeah. And, you know, and he wasn't around long enough to, you know, I'm not saying he didn't enjoy his life because he was a very happy person, put out good energy, people loved him, you know, so I'm not saying he didn't do that his entire lifetime, but I think, you know, there were things that maybe he would have liked to have done that he never did, that he didn't have the opportunity to do. Right. And yeah. how and how did you deal with his passing? Because I mean, Well, I'm the type, you know, um it's still hard for me to talk about it thirty years later, let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how you deal with things. Everybody deals with things differently. What do you what do you want your legacy to be? You know, hopefully people when they remember me just think, Hey, you know, he was a dude, treated people right worked hard, was honest, was a good father. You know, that's yeah. it. Like I said, keep it simple. Well, thanks so much. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, right. do a lot of editing My pleasure. on this episode. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed Thank it. You so Thank much. you. Love you. Love you too.